0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And
1: I'm Donia Williams. Hey, how you guys doing today?
0: I hope you guys are enjoying your Sunday, and I hope it's as nice and pleasant where you are as it is in good old Maryland at the minute. So this, yep, Donia, you are going to say something? No, I'm just
1: agreeing. <laughs> it's just nice. <laughs> it,
0: is, it is a beautiful day outside today. So today we are joined by Rick Murphy. Uh, Rick is an educator, businessman, philanthropist, political analyst, and award-winning author of several several historical publications. He's an international speaker um, as well as the national vice president for history, I believe I've got this title correct, for the Afro-American History and Genealogical Society, which is also known as AAHGS, A-A-H-G-S. Rick is a native of Boston. His family lineage dates back to the earliest colonial periods of both Plymouth and Jamestown, so two completely different areas. Uh, In his writing, uh, Rick explores the roles of rich contributions made by African-Americans from the earliest colonial period. He, I believe, has a new book coming out this month, or it has just come out this month, called The Arrival of the First Africans in Virginia. Welcome to the show, Rick.
2: Well, it really is an honor to be with you guys, and 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 Devon is correct as well as you are. It's absolutely beautiful out, and, and I hope your audience is sitting under a nice shady tree so they can join in, in the conversation, because it's absolutely beautiful out. But thank you very much for you guys inviting me to be here this, this afternoon.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you.
1: It is, it is. I'm excited because I'm an AUGS member myself, and so I'm I'm just, you know, you're my celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> this week <laughs> so because I'm meeting the vice president of the you know of an organization that I'm a part of and just really trying to learn more about it so I can see where I can fit in and help and do things
2: but the, Dawn, I mean it's an honor to have you as an odds member and and the celebrity <laughs> is you guys not me I'm just the guy doing the hard work so uh, the honor is, the honor is mine. Actually, while we're on the topic of UGS, how many chapters are there? Right now, um, that's a good question, Brian. We have so many different um, organizations trying to incorporate themselves as new chapters. We just brought on three new chapters. There's the New New Orleans chapter, there's a new chapter in Virginia, and there's a new chapter in Tennessee. I'm sorry, North Carolina and Tennessee. And I think there are about five more chapters we hope we'll have online within the next two to three months, certainly before the conference in October. So I think that brings us up over 40, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So we've got 40 good strong chapters and we have a lot of members that belong at large.
0: Excellent, so you guys are really growing and that's good.
1: Yeah, so how do you guys feel about uh, virtual chapters?
2: We had a virtual chapter, um, there was a virtual chapter in Virginia. Um, we tried to sustain it. Um, um, it was led by Shelly Murphy, very progressive. And it was really before everybody understood what virtual was. So we hope that we get some virtual chapters come online. Now that we're all much more familiar with uh, with virtual. So- I
1: have one, I have one. Oh, good. I, I, I'm, I'm ready. I've been ready for a while. Okay. I, I, yeah, because we have a, where Brian and I research in South Carolina, there's no one there in that area. But if we can, we don't want to be under, and I, I'm, this is no offense to the National Genealogical Society, but we would like to be under the umbrella of the African-American one. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, I was like, well, let's start a virtual chapter for all but for Edgeville, South Carolina. You have many people that will wanna be a part of
2: that. Love it, love it, love it. Love it. So so if you guys wanna start a virtual chapter, um, I suggest you get in contact with Shelly. She can tell you what she did, how she did it. She probably has the paperwork. She can tell you the pros and the cons, the strengths and the weaknesses. Take the best and run with it. So we would love right. that to happen. So That's thank you. Awesome.
0: Now you are a busy man. And it is always hard to keep up, keep track with what you're up to and organizations that you're involved in. Are you also a part of the Sons and Daughters of the, the Middle Passage?
2: Uh, yes, I am a chartered member. Um, I'm, I'm honored to say um, I'm on their board. Um, I was their first registrar. Um, right now, they have a phenomenal registrar um, in Labrenda Garrett Nelson. Um, so, yes, that's another organization that I belong to.
0: Well, I'm filling out my application. I'm halfway through. And I think Don, Donnie has just finished hers. Good.
1: Yeah. So do you have supplementals there like they do at the door? Because I work at the Daughters of the American Revolution. I know you do. <laughs> and um, and I know we've we done a
2: lot with, of research but, at D.A.R.
1: Yeah. So we, we I know we have the regular applications and then we have the supplemental oh, applications. Think, yeah. So does sons um and daughters have that as well?
2: They yes, have we supplementals? do. Um, the 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 patriot ancestor that I came in under. Um, once I went into the organization, I have added other supplementals as well, as well as other family members have added supplementals. So yes, we do have supplementals, and we encourage through the sons and daughters of Middle Passage to to put those supplementals in, because it makes it so much easier for other people coming behind us to to join the organization. So. Okay.
0: So, Dawnia, for audience members who aren't familiar with the term supplemental, would you like to take a couple of minutes to explain what that is?
1: Sure. So when you join the, so because I'm speaking from Daughters of the American Revolution, but I've noticed that the sons and daughters are very similar, it's set up the same way. Um, Daughters of the American Revolution, when you apply, you apply with your patriot. And once you have been accepted, approved, you receive your certificate with your national number and your Patriot's name on the certificate, same with the sons and daughters. But then after that, if you have some, another Patriot that you are a part, that you are related to, that you're connected to, you can now submit information about that second, that next Patriot. And some, you know, like most of us, we have a lot of people that we connect to in the history. So the more supplementals you put out there, the better your chances are to help somebody else to join into that organization. So that's what a supplemental is. It's basically you read, it's you just saying, well, I also relate to this person and to this person and to this person, so on and so forth. The amount is a little cheaper. Um, It's just $75, but overall you do have to,
2: That's what a supplemental is. And I I misspoke when I, uh, as Brian said, I belong to a lot of different organizations. So sometimes when I'm tired, I can't get my organization straight. I made reference that it was my patriot ancestor and the sons and daughters, we refer to them as our honored ancestor. Yes. So these are ancestors that are, who were enslaved and we're really honoring them because they helped build this country. So we think it's really important that they be honored. So I have Um, the honored ancestor that I came in under, and then the uh, supplementals for the other honored ancestors um, as well. So shout out to sons and daughters, United States Middle Passage. Mm -hmm.
0: So Rick, normally you get asked to speak about your links to the first Africans of Virginia, so going back to 1619, 1620, but today we're gonna take a little bit of a different tack because I don't really recall very often you speaking about your enslaved ancestors in the northern, the, the northern colonies. So you're kind of in an unusual, well I shouldn't say unusual, you have a unique kind of thing where you're at, your African ancestors in Virginia were free people of color but your African ancestors in the northern colonies were enslaved. Um, so gonna basically ask you the kind of intro question we ask a lot of people, how did you even get into genealogy to, to even start kind of finding all of this stuff out?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, um, I do speak quite often about my enslaved ancestors because I'm equally as proud of them as I am of my free ancestors. Um, uh, growing up in the north, through the history books, I heard about slavery and slavery was was associated with the South. Um, and for me, um, my family was a family on my mother's side and my father's side that were very big on talking about family. So I knew that I had enslaved ancestors from the South, I'm, I'm sorry, from the North. Um, in fact, did not grow up far from where they lived. So we were very much aware Um, of where our enslaved ancestors in the Massachusetts and in the New York area lived. More important than that, the enslaved ancestors um, owned about 40 acres of land and not 40 acres and a mule, Um, um, it was for different reasons that that was about the amount of land that they initially owned, grew to 200 acres and they gave it to the town in which they lived in the mid 1800s. And the reason for that is the three remaining daughters in the family came down with smallpox. One became deaf, one was blind, and the third child was was deaf, blind, and unable to speak. Mm. And the father was so afraid that his daughters would be sold south into slavery he gave his land to the town of South Situate, which is now Norwell, for them to take care, perpetual care of his daughters until the day they died. So we were always aware of that. So it was a situation where we were aware that our ancestor who was enslaved, who had amassed this amount of property, gave it to the town for the protection of his daughters. Who would ever thought that a formerly enslaved man would be that intuitive with that much foresight for the protection of his daughters to make sure they didn't become enslaved. And the town, in fact, put the daughters in an awesome house, which most folks don't know what that is, but if you're from the North, it was a poor house. They lived on the top floor in suites and the town took care of them until they died.
0: so the town actually honored its its obligation
2: it absolutely honored its obligation and not only did the town honor its obligation it became the first conservation land in new england and today the land is called cuffy's lane and next year i'll have a book to come out about cuffy's lane and describe the nuance about that particular african-american enslaved family
0: So kind of in a way, that that was his insurance, that was like an insurance policy, basically.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in my first book, Freedom Road, I go in quite details about my enslaved ancestors from the North, because when I did my genealogical research on them, I was absolutely blown away how they themselves were, were on the cutting edge of American history. Um, so when you read the book, you'll see, because my enslaved ancestors in New York, um, they last names were Gardner, and they were the enslaved uh, uh, men and women on Gardner Island um, up by the Hampton uh, area. So, so it's really pretty interesting. So if you don't mind,
0: um. I think in America in general, <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion people don't, a lot of people don't even know that the northern colonies had slavery. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about when that ended. Some people think, oh, okay, Revolutionary War, all of a sudden all the New England colonies made all of their enslaved people free overnight and it was, you know, all wonderful. But it was a far messier affair than that. Can you talk a little bit about the progression from about the progression into freeing all of the enslaved people in New
2: England? What's interesting, Massachusetts, I believe it was 1635, was the first state to enslave um, Africans. There was a Native American uprising in the state of Massachusetts. They put in place a law Um, that anytime there was a war or any captives of that war, they could be enslaved. So the purpose of the law was to enslave the Native Americans, but it also enslaved the African Americans as well. From that, the other New England states uh, enslaved people as well. Now, first of all, the Massachusetts boundaries, very different than what the boundaries are today. Massachusetts, um, Maine was part of Massachusetts and New Hampshire was part of Massachusetts until those particular areas broke off and became their own individual states. During the Revolutionary War, many of the men who were from the New England states and from New York, um, um, uh, men of African descent joined the Revolutionary War. After the war, the New England states or the Northeast states began to emancipate um, the African Families, um, because they felt that the war was fought over freedom and to to uh, fight tyranny. So the so the northeast states slowly emancipated um, their enslaved. And I think from 1781 to 1815, 1820, um, all of the northeast states began to emancipate their slaves. New York, I think, was a little bit different. Um, I think those that were born in a certain time frame became free, and they gradually um, 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 emancipated those who um, um, were born into slavery. So um, I could be slightly off on that, but they emancipated over, I think it was a 50-year period.
0: OK. So really, I mean, even as late as 1815, 1818, you would still see someone who was recognizably enslaved. That is correct. Wow. That's far later
1: than I than I realized. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So how did you feel when, when you figured out that, like Brian was saying, you know, to it, for for most for most African Americans, we know that if we have enslaved people, then more than likely they're coming from the South. But your free people of color was in the South, and your North is where you're enslaved. Did you, did you feel confused? I mean, like, like you, did you feel like, wait a minute, what is this or, you know, what was your feeling on that?
2: Well, no, I didn't feel confused about that. What I felt confused about is um, my family was very big in history. They were very big on um, what they call black history. my grandfathers, my grandmothers, they were very big in making sure that we understood who our people were. And in understanding who our people were, also the circumstances around who they were. So for example, when I began to read about the Revolutionary War, I was confused because I knew black people fought in the Revolutionary War because my people fought in the Revolutionary War. So from the time I was a young child, I knew that I had 13, 14 African American men that fought in the Revolutionary War. So when I raised my hand in school and says, oh, my ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War, I was told, no, that can't be true. Wow. So when I heard, so no matter what period of American history I studied, what I learned at home seemed confusing to what I was learning in school. Yes. Oh. I knew I had African-American ancestors that fought in the Civil War. When they talked about Frederick Douglass, I knew I had an ancestor who was best friend to Frederick Douglass's son. I would raise my hand and say, oh, I know about Frederick Douglass. Oh no, that can't be true. So the uh-huh. confusion, confusion for me is I was most fortunate that my, my grandparents and my parents made sure we all understood our history, our family history and american history and that's why i'm a big proponent today that folks need to understand their genealogy, they need to understand the time frame in which their relatives come from and the history around those folks because our kids are going to school without appreciating the full african american experience here in the united states from its very beginning.
0: So as a kid, how did you reconcile, or I'm not sure what word I want to go for, reconcile or get your head around two very contradictory messages? Your, your family is telling you one thing. And right. assume, and it's assuming they're showing you the receipts, the actual documents for your family, but the educational system
2: is telling you something completely different. How did you get your head around that? Well, you know, I, I think. I I really attribute a lot of this to my upbringing. Um, I think my parents and my grandparents prepared us all well. I grew up in a predominantly white community. Um, I would tell these things or share these things with my white friends and they did not believe me. And I think because I was raised in such a fashion that we knew they would not believe us and it wasn't for them to believe us that we knew who we were. We we had the evidence. I mean, I had um, flags um, of my great-great-grandfather when he was in the, the Civil War. Um, we lived in a rather small area so we could visit the tombstones of these men, these honored men who served in these wars. Um, we had pictures. Um, we had all kinds of collateral documents that supported what we learned at home. So, so we didn't learn this stuff in the classroom. The classroom was added on to what I already knew, what we already knew. And even as an adult today, when I talk to my cousins about this, um, we, we talk about how it was a very rich experience for us to learn this stuff. Um, so as, as I am an adult today, I'm a big proponent on African-American history American history is African American history yes, and I'm a of genealogy, because you don't know where you came from, unless you know where you came from, and you don't know where you're going until you know how the road was paid for you before. And that's why I say I'm very proud of my, my free ancestors, but I'm more proud of my enslaved ancestors because they built this country, and I understand what that means. Mm-hmm.
0: That's why talking about We tend to get very angry and upset when people, when other people of color and black people go, I'm I'm not my ancestor.
2: Let
1: me tell you something. That is the most irritating thing that I've ever heard in my life. I can't stand that statement. And um, I had a cousin who was talking about it on her page and she was like, I don't think I'm comfortable with it. And she had other people, you know, responding and they were making a comment on it. They were like, oh, um, I I don't take it in a negative way. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't take it in a negative way because you haven't done your research. And and the the bottom line is is that every time somebody, in my opinion, and again, y'all know how I am, this is my opinion and it's not the opinion of genealogy adventures, but I'm telling you, when you start coming off and saying I'm not my ancestor, you didn't know Martha Brooks. And Martha Brooks was off the chain. And I would love to be her and then. And now I know that not only am I her, but I'm her personified. You understand what I'm saying? I'm I'm, I'm bigger because now I have so much stuff that she didn't have that's backing me. So I'm really dangerous. She was already a force inner self. You have to be a force living in that time. These kids today that's coming out their mouth saying that they are nowhere near as strong as who our ancestors were.
2: No, absolutely. And, and when I wrote my first book, Freedom Road, um, um, I was very fortunate that I knew two of my great grandmothers. Um, I knew great aunts, great uncles. Um, And when I wrote Freedom Road, some of them I had interviewed and they told me to be very honest, to be very open, don't sugarcoat something. And in the book, I talk about how one of my great grandmothers was sexually assaulted as a young child and a birth came out of that uh, relationship. And I'm a descendant of that relationship. And I don't think it's anything to sugarcoat But I think that made my grandfather a much stronger person. And I think that's why he made sure that we understood our history. Um, And they wanted to make sure that we told the story the way that it needed to be told, because that's who makes us today. And I think that's part of who I am today with the full understanding that a young 13 year old child to be raped by someone um, is not something to be ashamed of. It's something that you, and and, and I don't say embrace like I'm, 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 Encouraging, anyway, but I understand what that young girl had to go through,
0: right. and and
2: the offspring of that of that young girl, um, and and I think that's who we are, and that makes us a stronger people. Mm-hmm. So
0: again, just like Louisa Hammond, raped at twelve, mother at yeah. thirteen, mother at thirteen. So before I delve into like research-oriented questions, I just have one more, and I think I would be remiss given the kind of racial hurly-burly moment we're in at the moment. So you have done your research. You you know, you joined the the Sons of the American Revolution with your patriot ancestor. When it comes to to black people and people of color and our patriot ancestors, do you think that our ancestors are viewed in the same light or positivity as white revolutionary ancestors?
1: No.
2: Wow, that's a good question, Brian. First of all, as I indicated, um, I knew most or many of my patriot ancestors before I joined the SAR. I knew I had a white ancestor who was in the uh, Revolutionary War. He was part of George Washington's troops from the very beginning to Yorktown. Mm-hmm. I made a concerted effort and decision that when I joined the SAR, I wanted to join under an African American ancestor. I didn't want to do it under the European ancestor. I wanted to be under the, because I felt that committed that if he went to fight for the cause of liberty and freedom, that I was going to honor him. Unfortunately, our history has not come full circle yet. And many of us have not ensured that our African-American ancestors, whether they fought, and, and I had ancestors in the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Spanish-American, World mm. War I, World War II, um, and other family members in Korea, and what have you, that I wanted to make sure that their military service was recognized and appreciated. I am so happy that folks like Donya work at the DAR and help sisters of color find their African ancestors who fought in the Revolutionary War because that's where it started. And we need to make sure that everybody understands the service. And not only their service, I don't think most folks understand that at the time of the Revolutionary War, those that fought in the war were farmers. And the white farmers, the European farmers, three months left the battlefields to go home to take care of their farms. At the same time, the African patriots were told, if you stay for one year, I will give you freedom. If you stay three years, I will give you bounty land. So our African ancestors on average, and Don, you'll have to co- help me, I think it was something like 18 months versus three months.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We won the war. Yeah. The first battle that was won was the Battle of Saratoga and my ancestors, two of them with the Battle of Saratoga were part of the rear guard and that was the one that beat the British troops. We don't hear about that. And that's what I'm gonna write about in Cuffey's Lane. I think it's really important that so many of these African men during the Revolutionary War actually believed in equality and freedom and justice for all. That's why they went to war. So it's incumbent upon us to take their memory, write these stories, write their histories and make sure people understand who they are. You know,
0: you've inspired me because I have one by the name of Rupin. I mean, I have many, but I've got one that I would like to join under called Rupin Bird. He was born in Mecklenburg, um, South Carolina, ended up going into North Carolina, um, joined up to fight in the, the Revolutionary War. First, he was a musician, but then his commanding officer found out that he traded regularly with Native Americans. Reuben had a white father. We don't know who he was. He's just one of the men in the neighborhood. But he started trading with Native Americans in that part of North Carolina. And they taught him how to hunt, how to be stealthy, so his commander's like, look, as far as I'm concerned, you've got the stuff. So he was using Rubin to do things like guerrilla attacks on the British, doing things like surveillance, reporting back where, where the British were. So even though what he was doing wasn't necessarily glamorous, he wasn't necessarily on the front line shooting. He was providing he was providing useful and crucial intelligence back to his, his American commanding officer.
2: And and when you think about it, Brian, how amazing is it? And I I don't want this to be lost at this particular time, at this particular moment. How amazing it is that our ancestors fought in a rebellion, fought in a revolution. Not much different than what the young people are doing today. Mm -hmm. They fought in the streets. The first to die for the American Revolution was a riot in Massachusetts, Crispus Attucks. Not much different than what our young people are doing in the streets today. So you can see how important it is that we embrace our history and don't let others whitewash it or deny that history of us. Because from the very beginning, we have struggled on this land, we built this land, we built the economy in which this land is founded upon. And it's really incumbent upon us to go back and find out who our ancestors are. Our young people who are in the streets today, no matter what city, what county, what town, what village, what state, have that patriotic rebellion in them and they got it from the ancestors going back to the 1700s.
1: And they don't even know it. They don't even realize that's where it comes from. And um, that actually Janice made a good, so there's two things, Janice made a good point While you were saying that, she's saying, the fact is, is that we're not taught that. So that brings me to something that's very near and dear to me. How do you feel about changing up what is taught in school right now as far as history? Like, not necessarily changing it, but adding to it. Because for me, I know genealogy opened me up to everything that you're talking about. You know, it wasn't school that did it. Although I was very interested in history and things of that nature, it wasn't until I started researching my family when I started seeing myself in all of this research. That's when I started to, you know, realize that I I played a part. Having six going, being able to go back six generations in american history i dare somebody to tell me i'm not from america please tell me to go back i want you to do that because then it's on and popping and i'm I'm gonna tell you no you sure about that because every time i get into it with somebody about history i look at them and i'm like y'all sure you want this work because i'm on a whole nother level now and we need to you know you need to know what you're saying when you're speaking to me so how do you feel about maybe Adding a course of genealogy, whether it's in high school or college, or just incorporating that type of thing to better teach African American history, because in my opinion, that's how you will be able to integrate it in so many. If, if that's the best word to use, but how do you feel about that?
2: Well, you know, when when I hear people say, uh, um, and, and I'll be honest, I've not people who know me know where to go and where not to go. So I've not heard someone say to me, go back to where you came from, because they know I'm the wrong person to say that to. I swear. (laughs) But but that being said, I know of many people who've had that said to them. And I say to them, you should say to them, I will go back to where I came from, which was Virginia. Now, (laughs) what is your last name? It sounds like it's a name that's only been here for a generation or two and that stops the conversation. And you're absolutely correct. It's very important that this stuff is taught in schools. And the only way it's gonna be taught in schools is if we as parents and grandparents as adults go down to those schools and look at those textbooks and see what's in those textbooks. When those texts, now the state of Texas does not like me because I talk about the state of Texas and all of those publishing houses that come out of Texas that they like to talk about how we are reinventing history. They need, I check them every time because they're reinventing history with the nonsense that they put in those history books. And it's really important that we hold them accountable. I don't know if you heard the story I tell all the time about the teacher, the parent here in Virginia saw something in her son's textbook, went to her local school superintendent, laid him out within hours, was talking to the superintendent of the Virginia, Department of Education had the brand new books pulled out of the county school system. And that person who was the parent happened to be the head of the history department of one of the area colleges. And she knew her history. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of stuff that we need to do it's, So you're absolutely correct. The stuff needs to be in the schools. We need to make sure that the stuff is being taught correctly. And I think one of the reasons why we see these young white kids on the street, marching with these young black kids on the street is because they themselves learned about Martin Luther King. They learned about some of this stuff in their schools as children, as junior high kids, high school and college kids. And the only way we're going to change the minds and attitudes around the country is through what they learn in those textbooks in the public schools. So long answer, yes, absolutely. That's where it needs to stop.
0: Mm. And for the benefit of the people who will be watching this episode on demand, we are not discussing, talking about, or even suggesting about the removal of European American education, no, we're not. history. We are just discussing about teaching an inclusive, well, a represent a truthfully represent representative history of America.
2: Exactly. No, 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 no I'm going to, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, Brian, I'm going to check you on that one. I'm not talking about a representative history. I'm talking about talking about American history, not a sanitized American history. American history. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. So, so so I want to be clear. I want American history. Don't sanitize it. Don't Mm -hmm. whitewash it. That's right. Don't don't hide some of it because a lot of this stuff has been hidden.
1: For too long. American
2: history. Teach all of it, not part of it, not some of it. So we're saying the same thing. We're just yeah, saying we're just, the same exact thing. we're, no, we're saying the same thing, but I want to make you right. You just want to
0: clarify it for the people right. in the back of the room who are talking and not paying attention. I'm with Say you. it
1: louder, that's right.
0: <laughs> so um, a, lot of our, a lot of our audience gets some um, they find discussions about research strategy very useful. And it, it's a question that John and I like to ask Oliver, I guess, because everyone works in slightly different ways. I mean, we have the genealogical standard of proof that we all do our best to, to work to. But you know, after a while, after a point, depending on who you're researching, you may have to develop, um, use out of the box thinking. So when it came time for you to research your New England ancestors, uh, well, specifically the New York and Massachusetts, How did you go about creating um, a a research strategy that would give you the answers that you were looking for?
2: Again, Brian, um, I can provide tremendous help in helping people today do their genealogical research. I am a poor example, however, of that. And the reason why I'm a poor example is because I grew up knowing who all these people were those breadcrumbs were very easy for me to find. And not only was I able to find it, um, I was able to pull the documentation. So whether it was my enslaved ancestors in the North, I knew where they lived. I knew what blocks they lived on. I knew where they were buried. It made it very easy for me to find my enslaved ancestors. And that's not easy for other people. When I started, now I'm very old, I'm older than dirt. I started doing this in the 70s and when I did this in the 70s, there was no computers, there was no internet, there wasn't even microfilm or microfiche. I did it the old fashioned way. I went into those libraries. I went down into those town halls in the basements. I went to the court records in the basement. I went to the land deeds in the basement. I opened up files and boxes that hadn't been opened up before and my hands were raw from the, the, the dust mites, um, but I knew where to find stuff. I knew how to find stuff. What I tell people today is doing genealogical research for Americans of African descent is very different than doing genealogical research for Americans of European descent, it's different. So when folks say, start with me and then go to my parents and go to my grandparents and so forth and so on, that's, that's very easy, that's very nice. What I'm telling folks is sometimes it's better to start in the middle. So many folks had difficulties getting to the 1900s and they would say, that's my glass ceiling. I can't get past 1900. The noes that get past 1900 say, I can't get past 1870. That was the glass ceiling. That was the first census that came out. And they would say, Rick, I don't know how you did it. Um, or you're just lucky, or you're just one of the few people. I tell people sometimes go with the family name, find out where they were from in the South and start there. I'm a big proponent of Paul Hynek's book. He came up with over 500 names. It's now up to 900 names of free Americans of African descent in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. If you got those family names and you know your people are from that area, that's where you should start now. Paul Hynek did the genealogies for many of those families going back to the 1600s. And folks will tell you when they try that, they are now able to connect their families and they're working backwards to themselves. A lot of folks, my last name is Murphy. It's an Irish name. If I started looking for all the Murphys in the world, I wouldn't find anything. Go to your grandparents, your great, grandparents, your great, great parents. The reality is you get about 50 different family names out there. Look for those family names, go as far back as you can and bring it back to present day. A lot of folks that have joined the sons and daughters, they follow that strategy and they've been successful. A lot of folks that have have joined um, Sons and Daughters of the American Revolution, they will tell you they have found that successful. They're joining Colonial Dames, they're joining all these other organizations, they're finding them. And the other thing is, so many of us have English last names and many of us did get those names from our our enslavers. Many of those English names also came from young men and women in the colonial period who married African-American young men and women. And that's why they changed those laws in the 1700s. You can find those names coming over from England, living with black families, living in black communities, and oh, by the way, that's where the name came from. So it's really doing your genealogical research differently than what we're told to do. So you said something that has me really intrigued. You were
0: saying that there's some Americans of African descent who struggle to get past the 1900 census. Is that because of early migrations?
2: Well, it's early migrations and and, and, and they're doing what they think they should be doing. They don't realize that your great grandmother, her name may be Murphy, but her father and mother's name's not Murphy, it's something different. So it's really, because she married a, so you've got to think outside the box. They're, 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 they've put um, roadblocks in front of them without realizing when you're tracing a family, a female family line, don't keep looking for that, that, that same name because they married. Also, a lot of the women in our family lines had children out of wedlock. So as a result of that, you're looking for a man with that name when the reality, it's not there. So you've got to think outside the box. Don't do it the way that, and oh, by the way, and I'm sure Don will be able to tell you, many of those who joined the DAR and the SAR, they're finding that those women also had children out of wedlock and mm-hmm. they had to look at their genealogy very different in the way that they're doing it. now. So, so when you hear that the little old ladies DAR come from, you know, from these very pristine families over in Europe, that's not the case. So when you peel away that, you'll find the same kinds of challenges that they, we have, but wink, wink, nod, nod, they don't tell you that.
1: They sure don't so you only see it in their application you're absolutely right you only see that in the actual application that's right They will never come out and say it they're not because i there have been times when i'll go through an application and i'm like oh oh you black oh okay or oh somebody was dipping you know you can you know you can see it when you and then you start seeing and the ones that you see that in are the applications where it's a family of people starting to join at one time, and you get this whole, this huge, you know, pack of family members who are joining, and there you see it most in the supplementals. And yes. this person yes. is the father to this person, and then all of a sudden, this person is the father to this person on this side, and, right. and you're like, oh, okay, I see what y'all are doing. Uh huh. All yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. relate.
2: So it's thinking thinking outside the box to do your family lineage. And one of the reasons why a lot of us have not done this is because you're you're opening up family wounds, Mm -hmm. you're you're treading on conversations that nobody wanted to have, it's painful. Mm -hmm. Um, But quite frankly, that's the beauty of our history.
0: And I'm going to throw in my two cents worth, saying sometimes you have to actually cut through what I call coded language. So Donning and I, we have um, a South Carolina family by the name of Bug. They were free people of color going all the way back to early colonial Virginia. That line ends in an unnamed man of color, don't know anything about him, don't know if he was free or enslaved, and, some, and a woman who is only ever referred to as a white Christian woman. She is never named. So that kind of coded language tells me that she came from a good family, that the county that this occurred in was doing its best to protect her identity. Now I'm still trying to find the bastardy, bastardy bond because it's Virginia, Virginia had them. So basically bastardy bonds, if you were a woman and you had a child out of wedlock, That's right. the father would have to pay a fine or a bond. That's right. The colony didn't want to raise the child. They didn't want to have to spend money on it. Um, And the woman was usually named and shamed. But in this instance, we know that her name was either Bug or Doss, still don't know what her maiden name was. Um, But that's what that kind of tells me, that kind of good good Christian woman. They were doing their best to protect her identity.
2: And the other thing is, uh, it's very important to understand the counties. Um, and sure. most of my early research was done at DAR because they have those county books there. Um, so I am a big proponent in DAR and I would spend entire Saturdays going through those, those books. And for the African-American community, again, our young people today don't realize what our elders went through. Many of our enslaved ancestors, when they became free, they changed their names. Uh. They change their last surnames. And when you see that, and when you unravel that puzzle, you say to yourself, I am so proud that you did what you, now it's like hell finding you because you changed your name. Uh, 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 But the mere fact that you did, how progressive you were. I am no longer going to keep that name. So, and 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 there are many ways of stripping that banana peel away to make sure it's the right person but you can see their logic. I am no the, longer owned by you. I am my own man and all of my children from this point forward is they're going to have this name. That's powerful.
0: What are some of the ways that you can actually strip, you know, strip the, those layers back just to make sure just to determine that you really are looking at the same family group? just with a different last name?
2: Oftentimes what you'll see is when you go to those colonial records or those county records is you'll see John and Jane, and they may have a child by the name of John. So John, Jane, John. And then then, then you see the slave master's name and then you no longer see that family, but then 10 miles or five miles or five yards down the road, you see John, Jane, John, all the same age. So you got to question are they the same people or not? And what you start to do is you try to make those connections. Now, if John, Jane, John, and John's mother was Mary, and now you got John, Jane, John, you see Mary there, all of a sudden, that's the connection. They changed their name.
1: So, okay, I have a question. And I'm gonna tell, just just let me say this real quick. Hush, Shelly, because she coming for me on here. But, um, just very quickly, so you just made me think of something. And I, like most people know, my my two times great-grandmother, or at least our followers, my two times great-grandmother is a Brooks. And you're talking about this name change thing. And in 1870, everybody kept the name Brooks, but in 1880, her children's name were now Yeldale. Now I really like, which is who my family is today. Now, I like how you said that, that you know, she was going to say, I'm my own person. And in in, in, a, in a perfect world, that's what I thought. But she didn't change her name. She only changed her children's name. So what do you think she's saying if she only changed her children's name to Yeldale and she continued to keep the name Brooke? because I ended up finding out that she does have DNA. I'm connected to that Brooks line, but did she keep it because she's connected to them? Or was, do you think it was another reason? And if that's the case, if you were proud enough to keep it because you're connected, then why didn't you keep it for your kids?
2: Well, you know, we like to think that our, um, particularly the females in our family lines were prim and proper. Um, and that they they weren't uh, as sophisticated as young women are today. It's a good possibility that that was her married name and when she left her husband, she went back and took her maiden name. You will find that in the colonial records. Maybe she and and the father of the children were never married and she made sure that the children had that name. So we like to think that these are things that women do today without realizing that a lot of those women were far more progressive than what we think with. And common law marriages were not unheard of. So it is possible that she never took the, the father of her children's name because they were never married. They were common law. Um, and maybe she had hoped that sometime they would, or maybe the guy was not a very good guy and she really didn't want to marry him. So there's well, all she this was
1: sense. a breeder, she was a breeder. Well, there you go. She might have
0: She was a breeder, but okay. And again, I would I would encourage audience members not to romanticize the past, because I'm even thinking about some of my colonial white ancestors who were the first people in what's now Kentucky and Tennessee, in North Carolina. There was no preacher to marry them. There was no, you know, there was there was no one ordained in those really really proto early um, settlements to be able to marry people so you know people like to look at each other they got together and built a house and, and kind of raised a family and more another example researching on um, Puritans in, in Massachusetts again we're fed this story that they were like the purest of the pure they were like really religious you know religiously strict which they were. but if you start comparing a lot of the, the dates between when a couple when a Puritan couple got married, and the birth of their first child, it wasn't my months. It was six months, yeah. seven months, five months in one case. So I think, as you were, as you alluded to earlier in the um the episode, I think we have an overly, I don't want to say romanticized, we have a distorted view of what life was like back then.
2: Well, again, that goes back to history. We're not we're not telling history truthfully, honestly, and accurately. And you're absolutely correct. When you go into those colonial records, you'll see that. And and you know we all joke about how slave couples jumped the broom. Uh, the reality is that white couples did pretty much the same thing, and that's why you came up with that notion of common law marriages. They they were not marriages that were done legally, but they had the full effect of legal of a legal marriage. Um, so and, and 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 in those common law marriages, when the husband died, the wife got the property. So you know, we, we we tend to forget that stuff until it's brought to our attention. We say, oh yeah, I know both, but we don't think of it that way.
0: Or in some colonies, in some states, I'm thinking of a family of uh, ancestral couple in my own, my father's family, where it was illegal for black and white people to marry. So That's this couple, she was a free woman of color. He was a white gentleman. They, loved, you know, They fell in love. They lived together as common law man and wife, basically. Um, because they, they could not find anyone who would actually marry them.
2: Well, it was against the law for a preacher to marry them. Oh,
0: it's that's not true. That they yeah. couldn't
2: find anybody. It was against the law for a preacher to marry them.
0: That is true. There was a pretty, he- there was a pretty hefty fine for that.
2: It was a huge fine. Absolutely. It was a huge fine.
0: Mm. Our, basically, our ancestors did what they had to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> um... And in terms of that, so what advice, actually, um, this is a good one. So in terms, New York is a place I've never researched before. Um, although it looks as though I'm gonna have to start doing that that fairly soon. So what are the colonial record sets like for New York and especially for people of color who were living
2: in New York? I can only tell you my experience. Um, when I went to DAR, and again, I'm a big advocate for the books that they have there. Um, Those of you who have not been to DAR, you certainly should visit there, Mm -hmm. do your homework before you go. Um, When I went to DAR, um, um, first of all, I find it very difficult to understand the catalog system there. So, So, and it took me a long time to understand that it's done by state, it's done by county, it's not done by Dewey Decimal System method, which is what I learned. When I went to the counties that I was interested in, I was able to pull those colonial books. Many of them are not online. You've got to go to the actual books. They're abstracted books. And when I went to look for the individuals I was looking for, I found them there. And they would always have either the N after the name, N-I-G after the name, or the name Negro after the name. So I was able to find those colonial individuals. On some, I went to the actual counties and the actual villages and I was able to find the original source documentation and those original source documentations had the N, had the N-I-G, or had the Negro after the name, which meant that the abstract that was done 100 years ago took it exactly the way that it was. So again, I was very fortunate that I found what I was looking for.
0: And Donnie, you might be able to answer this question. Um, The Library of Congress, you can actually do like a a resource or a book lookup to see one, if they have it and two, to see exactly where it is before you even step foot in the building because you are right. The DAR library is huge. There are just so many books.
1: It's it's a lot.
0: Does the DAR offer something like that where you can do a resource lookup first to see if they have the title and... Well, yes. you've got it, or you can do that. Good. Yes. I would advise doing that because, yes. as Ruth says, that they do have a unique system, but they also have a lot of books.
1: Like yeah, like they they because like for example, say you send in an application that has information about a Bible that that's that's kept the you know has the Bible records. They actually keep those and put make them into this particular book because you may find your family in that in that Bible it, and it'll have like maybe the person's birth date or their marriage record or you know something like that in one of those big old Bibles those are things that they hold on to and it helps you research your um, your line and it, it's, it's really it's quite fascinating I mean I have my ups and downs with DAR, but overall, as far as researching is concerned, it is a gem. It is definitely a gem. And there's actually one person who asked the question as to how do you know if someone in your family fought in the DAR? There were people that answered her question. I think her name was Miss Grant. But the main way that you know is when the person was born. It's so simple. It's actually when the person was born. If your person was born before the revolution even started, and, but they're old enough, let's say about 15, 14, 15 years old, old enough to fight or not just fight, even just play the drums. Like then you are an American, your person is a patriot, even if they just played the drums for the war. So it's the age that really tells you whether or not you have someone that possibly fought in the DA and you know, in the um, American Revolution, and that's the biggest thing. Once you get past that hump, once you know, you know, when that person was born, then you can start digging from there. That's that's all, that's the suggestion that I give people.
2: Now, a couple of things about the DAR library uh, the DA library is designed um, primarily to provide documentation and source material for those who fought in the Revolutionary War. So don't go there thinking you're gonna find stuff in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. That's not what that library has. The library has primarily stuff from the late 1600s to about 1850, 1860. So it's a very, very narrow window. Uh, The library also has, um, with with respect to the Revolutionary War, um, as Danya indicated, an awful lot of black men fought during the Revolutionary War. Some fought for the Continental Army, some fought for the state militia, some actually fought for the English troops, and many of them went to Canada and came back and you'll find their names in the Book of Negroes. So there's a lot of source material out there that the average person doesn't know about. And in
0: the closing minutes of the show, so- Closing already? Clearly, yeah, this hour, this hour is almost... You're different.
1: always welcome to come back, Rick, know that.
0: <laughs> so normally in the, in the Southern um, enslaving colonies and states, when an enslaved person was freed, or the other word is manumitted, it was a, it was a legal proceeding. Their enslaver would have to go to court, prove that this person was of good character and, and all the rest of it. How did that work in in Massachusetts or New York? I mean, did the state issue freedom certificates, or is is there, what what are the documents that actually gave people their freedom?
2: There was no document. They were all manumitted. Oh, really? Just, Stroke of a pen. They became free. Wow. You will not find man, you will not find manumission papers. They would just they just they said on such and such a date you're free. Wow.
0: And they didn't have well, to I, make- it,
2: It's five o'clock. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um I'm more than, I'm I'm more than happy to stay if you guys are going to serve dinner and dessert.
0: <laughs> I think our producer then, would have I think our producer would have a word to say Okay, about okay.
1: That. <laughs> right. But um you can definitely come back. This was an awesome show and I so appreciate you being here and I'm you're going to hear from me about that uh that virtual group i know you're i good. have many people that want to be a part of that so right. thank you so much right. um, no for you're welcome on the show. we look
2: forward to it great. all right
0: thank you so much rick thank you for dropping your knowledge great conversation
2: yes no thank you guys i really appreciate it thank you very much
0: okay thank you everyone for joining us this sunday i'm brian Sheffy.
1: and i'm donia williams and you guys have an awesome day
2: bye bye